Chapter Two of Six Years in the Prisons of England by a Merchant, edited by Frank Henderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two: My Feelings on Entering Prison, Treatment and Employment Before Trial, My Trial and Sentence. It is impossible to give the faintest idea of my state of mind on finding myself a prisoner. The circumstances of my arrest, while in the midst of my arrangements for a long night journey to Scotland, flushed with success beyond my most sanguine anticipations, and impatient to accomplish my freedom from a burden which had long oppressed me, and which had latterly threatened to utterly bear me down, gave an overwhelming force and severity to the shock. Indeed, the sudden and undreamt-of change in my destination, the sharp and complete extinction of all my hopes and plans, stunned me for the time, and I felt it must be a hideous dream. I refused to credit the evidence of my senses. The detective's touch, which still burned upon my arm, the words of arrest, which still rang in my ears, his actual presence by my side, were but false creations of the mind. I continued to think, as I walked along in that strange company, that I must still be on my way to the railway station, that I saw the glare of the lights, and mingled in the bustle of the platform, when the dark outline of a London lock-up met my bewildered eyes. We entered its grim and silent gates. The cell door was closed behind me, the lock was turned, and I and the reality were left alone. About that dark cheerless cell, its cold bare walls, its grated windows, its massive door, there was to me an awful certainty. In an access of astonishment and grief, I threw myself on the solitary bench, for they had not sought to mock my misery with the presence of a bed and as thoughts of my wife and friends came upon me, I covered my face with my hands and wept. How long that flood of hot and bitter tears continued, I know not, but they particularly relieved my almost bursting head. I arose and in the darkness paced my prison floor. Even in these terrible hours, hope did not utterly forsake me. The swift revolution of fortune's will had indeed left me crushed and mangled in its track, but I was not actually ground to powder. As I became more familiar with the reality of my situation, I began to take a calmer and more hopeful view for the future. As morning dawned, I had almost persuaded myself that I had only to see the manager of the firm who held the bills, for uttering which I had been arrested, and make certain explanations and proposals to regain my liberty. With impatience, therefore, I awaited the hour, which I knew must come, when I would be removed from London to Scotland, and when, at last, the detective who was to accompany me opened my cell door, I almost welcomed him as a friend. We booked at Euston Square Station for the place which I intended to have gone to, under such widely different circumstances, the previous evening. 
My guardian performed his duty during this long and painful journey with kindness and consideration, and did not propose to put handkerchiefs upon me. Arrived at our destination, I was marched through the police and sheriff's office to the common prison, and, to my utter astonishment and dismay, was prohibited for nine or ten days to have any communication with my friends. The single ray of hope which had sustained me on my weary journey and illuminated my darkest hour was thus pitilessly excluded, and for the first time since my arrest I began to realise my true position. When I learnt that my arrest and incarceration in jail was noticed in all the newspapers, I felt that I was utterly and hopelessly ruined. No language could describe the anguish I endured as I thought of my wife and friends, of the disgrace and humiliation which I had brought upon them, and of the separation, worse than death itself, which was in store for us. Yet, strange as it may appear, amid all the mental torture I then and afterwards endured, I also experienced a certain sense of relief in my mind from considerations which would scarcely be expected to operate on one in my situation. Those only who have been in difficulties in business, who have borne the ceaseless strain on body and mind, which the burden of obligations, each day rushing forward with ever-increasingly velocity for liquidation, entails upon those who are honestly striving to stem the ebbing tide of torture, can fully understand how relieved I felt at the thought that I had no longer any bills to pay. Then a strong sense of indignation toward my prosecutors mingled with the wild and bitter current of my thoughts and prevented me from being overpowered and destroyed. It was now but too clear to me that I was the victim of premeditated and heartless scheme, the successful issue of which was to protect my creditors from loss indeed, but to involve me in utter ruin. I saw with feelings I cannot and dare not utter, and which I now confess it was sinful in me to cherish, that they had lured me on to the centre of a great sea of ice, but they had, with their opportunity came, broken it around me, and left me alone and helpless to struggle against the inevitable doom. Three of the six long, weary months during which I waited for trial were thus passed in a state of agony bordering on the madness of despair. The hours seemed magnified into days, and the weeks into years, and as they dragged their slow length along, my mental anguish received a new and terrible ally. Although I was as yet in the eye of the law an innocent man, the miserable allowance of oatmeal, which constituted my chief food, and which was in all respects inferior to the penal diet of the worst-behaved convict I ever met with in the English prisons, became loathsome to me, and the pangs of hunger were added to the mental torture I had till then alone endured. My cup of misery was surely filled to the brim. With the recollection of what I suffered then, burnt as it were, with a hot iron on my memory, 
I thanked Almighty God that no fiend was ever permitted, even in my worst and weakest hour, to whisper suicide to my ear. But I now can understand how some have listened to the fell deceiver and welcomed him, as friend and deliverer, to their arms. Fortunately for me, my early training and subsequent mode of life preserved me from any thought of this fatal solution to the problem of my life. I read my Bible almost constantly, although my reading seemed only to add to the bitterness of my regrets and self-reproaches. These questions would constantly suggest themselves to me. Could I ever have been a Christian? And what will the enemies of Christianity think and say about my fall? Until one day about noon, as I was gazing through the window of my lonely cell, I saw, or fancied I saw, a solitary star, and my thoughts were gradually lifted from the cross of suffering to the throne of mercy, and, let philosophers and theologians explain it as they may, instantaneous peace of mind followed the sight, or fancied sight, of that noontide star. The load was removed, which threatened to crush my brain into lunacy. The salt surf waves of bitterness were stilled, and within me there was peace. The preparations for my approaching trial now occupied the principal share of my attention. I had already consulted a solicitor, and without telling him the whole of my case, I learned from him that I could not be tried at all if the continental witnesses refused to come to scotland so advised i began to flatter myself with the belief that my case would ultimately be abandoned for lack of evidence i certainly wished that my late partner would come over and testify to my partnership with him which would have cleared my name from dishonour so far as related to the bills with which we were jointly concerned but knowing there were other bills of a similar character of which he knew nothing, I thought it would be useless to attempt to clear myself on one set of bills when I was unable to do so on them all, and I consented to my friend being instructed by my solicitor to remain at home, as, of course, it was of the last importance to me that the witness in connection with the other set of bills should also be absent. My solicitor wrote to them to the same effect. I will here explain the reasons which induced me at this crisis to adopt a course which many of my readers, no doubt, will regard as an attempt to defeat the ends of justice. I did not for a moment desire to justify myself with regard to the bills in question. To utter bills of exchange for which no real value has been given is not justifiable, however common it may be, and to tender such bills in exchange for merchandise and dishonour them at maturity is flagrant dishonesty. Whatever may have been the amount of my guilt, of the intention to defraud any man, I was as innocent as an unborn child. If I had had any such intention, the bankruptcy court would have been the safe and easy way to gratify it. Neither in these transactions did I ever suppose 
that I was offending the statute law of the country, since by the exercise of the same caution which enabled, and still enables, other men to tread very closely upon, but never to overstep, the limits of legality, I too might have kept myself secure from criminal prosecution. I considered myself justified, therefore, in availing myself of such means as were in my power to evade the operation of laws. I have never consciously violated. But in all this I may have been, and probably was, in error. I have no wish to extenuate or explain away any fault or crime of which I may have been guilty. I choose, rather, the language of penitence and confession, and although I may never perhaps be forgiven by society, I shall cherish the hope of being more mercifully dealt with by him who said, with reference to a greater sin than mine, Go and sin no more. Thus the days and weeks passed away, while I still hoped and believed that no one would appear to witness against me. The prison diet now, however, began to tell seriously upon me. In England and America, I believe a prisoner is allowed to maintain himself under certain restrictions whilst he is waiting for trial, but in Scotland he is compelled to subsist on a diet which is considered the main ingredient in the punishment of the very lowest class of offenders whose sentence do not exceed a few months' imprisonment. The sense of punishment involved in this treatment, which would kill me now, was to some extent forgotten in the greater mental suffering I then endured, but the pangs of hunger and painful dreams about food frequently compelled me to think of my health. On making a complaint to the medical officer of the prison, he told me that as I was in good health, he could only give me the choice of coffee and a slice of bread in lieu of the oatmeal breakfast, but on seeing the small quantity of bread I was to be allowed, compared with the bulk of the oatmeal porridge, I decided on not changing for the worse. I did not wish to be treated differently from other prisoners, and therefore did not appeal to any higher authority. Indeed, I then imagined that as I was stronger and heartier than the majority of my miserable companions, I could subsist upon a meagre diet as well, if not better than they. I now know from experience that I was wrong in this opinion, and that the man of strong digestion, accustomed to a generous diet, is likely to sustain more injury to his health a sudden change to a very low scale of dietary than those of weak digestion who have not been accustomed to any other. The only concession made to me was a slight addition to the time for exercise in the open-air cribs provided for that purpose. My legs, accustomed to much exertion, began to get stiff, and after I had been incarcerated for four or five months, one of my ankles occasionally pained me. The day fixed for my trial at last drew nigh, and so confident had I become that I should be liberated without a trial, that I had my clothes packed and ready to take abroad with me. I intended to leave the country forever, and seek a new home in a distant land, where the prejudices of friends and society 
would not debar me from all the channels of honour and usefulness. I was removed a few days previous to the fixed date for my trial to the prison in the city, where it was appointed to take place, and I then had my first experience of handcuffs. At length the eventful morning arrived that I was led to believe would set me free. I entered the court with a beating heart, and was placed in the dock between two policemen. I felt ashamed to lift my head or to look around me, but I had seen as I entered that space open to the public was crowded with the better class of citizens. The judges, of whom there were three, soon appeared and took their seats upon the bench, and began conversing with each other upon my indictment. One of them was overheard saying, It would be a very difficult case to prove. Meanwhile, some consultation was taking place amongst the legal gentlemen in front of me, when my agent and counsel came, and for the first time informed me that my trial might take place without the continental witnesses, and that supposing I was acquitted, I could be tried again on two of the bills, that already there was a warrant out against me, and I should be arrested a second time on leaving the dock. The Crown was willing, however, they said, to accept a limited plea of guilty, that I would be sentenced to only a few months' imprisonment, no longer perhaps than I would have to endure in suspense, awaiting a second and perhaps a third trial, and that it would be better for me to tender the plea of guilt the Crown was willing to accept. This advice, so unexpected and so different from what I had formerly received, given at the very last moment, had the effect of entirely unhinging my mind, and for the moment I seemed paralysed. Of this I was conscious, however, that the continuance of suspense, that the most painful of all suffering, combined with the compulsory oatmeal treatment of remanded Scottish prisoners, would kill me. Still, I could not bring myself to utter the words placed in my hands for that purpose. I waited and hesitated, and wondered where the jury were, and why they were giving me so long to consider before going on with the business of the court. Time seemed to have been given me, on purpose, to confuse my mind, for the longer I pondered, the more bewildered I became. At last, like a child, who does almost mechanically as his parents bid it, I read from the paper these words. I plead guilty to uttering two bills of exchange, knowing them to be fictitious. The judge in the centre asked for the counsel of the Crown if he accepted the plea, and on getting an answer in the affirmative, he whispered a second or two with his brother judge, whose son, I believe, prepared the case against me and then pronounced sentence of penal servitude for a term of years that then seemed eternity to me. I was removed from the court to the prison, stripped of my clothes, clad in the garb of the convict, and turned into a cell, there to writhe in tearless agony, and to indulge in bitter and unveiling regrets. End of Chapter 2